This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Yes, I do uh, hope that you can stop by and and, uh, my wife Jean will show you some of the materials we brought along, which I'll be talking about more so uh, later in the day, on this theme of worldview. That's what I've been doing for many years now, as the Lord seemed to uh, redirect my life from corporate America to being involved in, in this uh, theme of worldview, what that means, and why that's so incredibly important for the time in which we live. And so the message I have for you this morning and then the presentations I'll do following are all about that work. I'll give some history to that uh, later on today. I picked up your brochure. I like to do that when I visit churches, and I'm struck by a particular uh, phrase that you have in your brochure that says, without guidance from God's word and good Christian fellowship, we can never be the Christians that God desires. Uh, Guidance from God's word. There simply is no other thing equivalent to that. It is God's word that shapes our lives, directs our path, enables us to bear fruit for his kingdom, and have good Christian fellowship. Uh, You know, that's something that the world does not know. It simply does not know the value, the precious gift of good Christian fellowship. We just have longed for that, and and we've enjoyed that in many, many places where you know your brothers and sisters. I'm sure you've experienced this. You can be someplace uh, doing an event or whatever kind of gathering, and you learn that someone is a Christian that you've just met. And instantly you have that bond, camaraderie of, uh, you know, being a Christian together. And there's just something about that that's really a wonderful, almost a magical thing. So that's really, really great. I want to thank also the, all of you in the choir for your wonderful singing. I much appreciate that. And God bless you for your service to this church and to the body of Christ. It's really remarkable that you, the time you put in for that, I know. So the message that I'm bringing to you this morning, I entitle, The Place of the Mind. And we'll look at a number of verses. If you have scriptures handy, you could turn to 2 Corinthians. I'm going to point out a few key verses that address this topic of the place of the mind uh, for the believer and to understand, perhaps in some new ways, uh, about why it's so incredibly important that we continue to train our mind, shape our mind, renew our mind with God's word. So these are five verses that I'll just read and then we'll uh, follow that with some commentary uh, that have to do with this matter of the place of the mind. So 2 Corinthians 10.5, a lot of these verses or the the five that I have here are probably quite familiar to you. It's uh, common to hear these verses, different messages, uh, different books that we uh, might have. 2 Corinthians 10, 5, casting down imaginations 
and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Wow. Every thought? Are you there? <laughs> That's quite a challenge. Um, and yet here it is. Uh, we're commanded to bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. This is a lifestyle. This is not just head knowledge. It's lifestyle about how God's word should shape our lives that we walk out what God's word says. Casting down imaginations, every high thing. This, the enemy you know, prowls around the world seemingly having these high ideals of how to live the independent life, how to be full of yourself, the humanistic way of looking at life. This is Satan's goal. It has always been Satan's goal from the very days of the garden when he said, you can be like God. You know, just have your own thoughts. Uh, you don't really need to uh, obey or listen to another voice. Uh, you have it within yourself to be as God. So that's been a message from Satan from the very beginning. Another verse, Colossians 2.8, if you could turn there, please. This is one of my favorite verses. I use this regularly in all of my work with Christian schools, which has been my work for uh, many years now. I'll be addressing more of that uh, in the afternoon presentations or following this and then the afternoon. Colossians 2.8 reads, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy in vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Why would Paul say, beware? Why do we use such a word? It's because there's a danger out there. So be alert, be on guard, be aware that there is something out there that has every intention of spoiling us through simply the philosophy of fallen man, vain deceits, the rudiments of the world, the world system, a system that's built upon a non-Christ lifestyle. And so we're supposed to be on guard because there's so much, especially in our time in history, when the airwaves are full of messages about how to have the good life. Great percentage of that are, is simply lies. And it's, uh, it's, it's designed to impact our emotions and to suck us into believing a lifestyle where we're full of ourselves and following ways other than those outlined in the scriptures to please God. Third verse of the five that I want to share with you, John 8, 32. I'm sure that most of you know this by heart. This is a, a, the kind of verse that you find on plaques in Christian bookstores. Uh, in many places, uh, many of these verses are like that, but I trust that we want to make them more than a plaque on a wall. We want these to be embedded in our hearts, that they really do become uh, the word that feeds us and shapes our lives. John 8:32, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Well, the very words shall make you free implies that we're not free. At least we are not starting out free. We're in bondage. We're in bondage to lies. We're in bondage 
to an idea about the way life should work that is not based on the Word of God. And so this is the importance of having our minds trained that we shall know the truth. And let that, the truth shall make us free. Not free to just be full of ourselves, as I say a lot, but free to obey Christ. So this is the message of renewing our mind, of the place of the mind, is that we learn how to know God's word, live by God's word, such that we live according to God's word. We're not just free to do our own thing and uh, love Jesus, of course, but we go about life as if we're the captain of our life. That's not the message of the Bible. Fourth, this all-important verse, Romans 12, 2, that is talking about the mind and the place of the mind and how we are to be at, at work in, uh, in shaping our mind. Romans 12, 2 is another verse that I'm sure has probably been preached from this pulpit, and you've probably heard it and read it in other places. This all-important command that Paul gives us, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So here again, we see this challenge. Do not be conformed to the world. Do you know that's what the world wants us to do? The world wants us to be conformed to its principles. The world hates the idea of being conformed to the word of God, which is ridiculed, uh, denied in many places, especially in an education system that has truly fallen off the track over the last several decades in America, I will address that problem a great deal in the two sessions that I have later today. But being, be not conformed to this world is a great challenge in our world today with the different social media that our youth are exposed to, uh, with the news channels that we are exposed to, uh, the music, whatever it is, we're constantly being, being bombarded about being conformed to the world. Uh, you know, the last several years, we have this phrase, uh, to be politically correct. One of the two books that we carry is entitled that, Political Correctness. And uh, it's the story of how that phrase was given to us by Marxists. How Marxists coined that phrase because they could not market uh, Marxism and expect, you know, uh, in America for that to be something desired many, many years ago when they came here. So political correctness is a phrase that we were given by these God-hating Marxists to get us to be conformed to their way of life. And we really do have to work hard at avoiding that idea. Lastly, perhaps the verse that's most relevant in Scripture of the 32,000 verses in our Bibles is from Proverbs 23, 7. So I'd like you to look at that for just a second. Uh, Proverbs, the book of wisdom, is such an incredibly important book and has so many principles and, and uh, statements about how to be a Christian, how to serve our king. But this Proverbs 23, 7, for as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. 
very short statement. As we think in our hearts, so we are. Do you know that that's true both individually and collectively? It's true as a family, it's true as a company, it's true as a country. As we think, so we are. It's really impossible for it not to be that way because we all do things where at the moment it seemed like it was the best thing to do. We think it, and for some reason we've convinced ourselves this is the right thing to do, so we do it. That's just the way life works. And if our mind has not been trained to think biblically about so many important spheres of life, we will think secularly, if I can use that word, non-Christian, and we will behave accordingly. And for at least 50 years, that's what's been happening in America. As we have jettisoned God's word from the public square, pretty much totally gone in our lifetime today, we have these thoughts before us, and we think in our heart with a very secular mind. And so that's how we are. That's how we walk. That's how we live. And that's the great problem in America today, that we have gone secular as a nation. Do you know in colonial American days, church attendance was about 85% in all of the colonies. It was just what you did, because you knew in your heart that was the thing to do. You go to church on Sunday. Gradually, as America began to shift and lose that emphasis on the importance of the Word of God, that lesson. Today, we're less than 25% in church this morning in our country. Uh, different researchers like Pew Research and Barna Research uh, have shown that number from different places. I remember a few years ago, I'm sure it's worse now, Greater Seattle. Seattle, been on the news a lot, right? Less than 4% of the greater Seattle attends church on a regular basis, meaning two times a month or more. All of New England, the place where Christianity was birthed on this land, about 15% of the people are in church, two times or more a month. You have to say, what happened? Why did the conviction that the pilgrims and the Puritans came here, landed on the shore, declared the land to be a hill for the light of God. What has happened to us? That we've gone from 85% church attendance, just that, church attendance, to less than 25% today. And if you think that's bad, which it is, think about Europe, where Christianity was truly birthed. All of the continent of Europe on Sunday, less than 5% of it is in church. How does that happen? It happens because people's minds have stopped being shaped and trained and renewed by the Word of God. A little at a time, a little at a time, we replace biblical thinking with secular thinking, and then pretty soon it just goes away. As human beings, we always do what we value. If we don't value it, why do it? We value something else, and that's what's going on. We don't value church in America like we used to, like we should, like the Word of God calls us to do. 
It's just what happens to a people when it loses its convictions about the importance of the mind being shaped in, by the word of God. And so it's a little thing. I'm sure you all know of the great problem that we're now having in America where when our young people, when they turn 18 and leave home for whatever, within six months, guess what's gone? Church attendance, Bible reading, prayer. Why? Well, I'm going to give that message later today about why that is true. And it's really summed up in one word, worldview. Something hasn't worked right in most of our churches on this meaning or the topic of worldview that has not given our youth this conviction of ownership about the word of God. And so when they leave the place of authority, the family, the church, within months, it's just gone. That's, I hear that everywhere I go. And it's a, it's a very sad thing for preachers in particular to, uh, to see uh, their young people uh, stop going to church. So that's the reason why we have this message and work on, uh, on the place of the mind in Christian life. The common ideas that we find in these five verses uh, have three words, thoughts, mind, and truth. Uh, those three words are going to define what we're talking about here this morning, thoughts, mind, and truth. And with that, I want us to uh, now look at the place of the mind in human nature and in Christian maturity. And to do this, I'm drawing from a particular book uh, by an individual. Uh, you, I'm curious to know if you know of the name. So if I may ask by show of hands, how many of you heard the name or have read any of Watchman Nee? If you have, God bless you. You know then that he was a famous person in China. He uh, passed away in 1972 after 20 years in prison. A very faithful uh, young man and uh, is known as the father of the house church movement in China, which is still strong and growing. One of his many books, his magnum opus, as we say, is called The Spiritual Man. Uh, it's a fairly large book, what we call fat books. I always like to tell Christian audiences that you ought to have at least a few fat books in your library, uh, you know, 400 plus pages of things, because when you read fat books with footnotes, be sure it has footnotes, now you're getting into some really serious, significant scholarship work. It's easy to find, you know, 100, 150 page Christian books that have some good message, but not very deep with a real theological basis. So Watchman Nee had this book, The Spiritual Man, and the essence of it is, which uh, I'm going to have to illustrate and try to have you imagine what I'm, what I'm wanting to create in your mind as a picture, because uh, if I do this by PowerPoint, then it's a lot easier to show it on the screen, but I don't usually use PowerPoints for uh, sermon messages. So uh, you have to think of it this way. He described the human being in three concentric circles. So you'd have an outer circle, a middle circle, and then a smaller inner circle. And then within that, he described what those meant. So the outer circle was simply the body, the shell, you know, our flesh, just the physical uh, uh, entity that we are created by God. 
the inner circle he identified as the soul of man. And I'll come back and explain what the components that he claimed were part of each of these. And then the very inner circle was the spirit. So you have body, soul, and spirit. He claimed that's, that's how man is constructed or designed by God. So then if you take these circles and put it into three slices of pie, so you have three different sections all the way through. So the outer part, the body, has three primary uh, aspects. Flesh, blood, and bone. He, he would argue that the whole human body would fall into one of those three categories. Flesh, blood or liquids, and bone. Everything in the body. That's just the way the body is. The middle circle, the soul, had three functions. Mind, will, and emotion. The mind, our thoughts, how we think. The brain is in the body. The brain and the mind are not the same. The brain is the flesh. The mind is the function of the brain. The will is our volition, our ability to choose, to exercise our will, to choose this instead of that. So the will is a function of who we are, how we operate as human beings. And then emotion is simply our feelings, how we feel. Lots of things in scripture you know, describe emotion, sadness, happiness, sorrow, uh, all kind of fear, uh, safety and whatnot. And he would argue, very rightly, I would say, we want to be careful that we don't lead with emotion. That's very risky to let our lives be governed by emotions. We want to be governed by truth that's in our mind, that we know the right thing to do, and we choose that. So our mind is the place where our, our thoughts are shaped by the Word of God, which is supposed to be by Christians, then we choose to act out on what we know in our mind, and our emotions will follow. God may place us in a place where we're fearful. We have fear. If that's where God has placed us, so be it. But we walk in that. If God has put us in a place where we're joyful, we're full of happiness, praise God for that. But the emotions should not drive us. Our emotions will follow, and we thank God for whatever that is. Then the inner circle is simply a single unit, the spirit. The spirit is the life. When God breathed into Adam, became a soul, a living soul, it was a spirit that was our life. The spirit is our life. When the spirit leaves the body, its body is then dead. That's the real definition. The biblical definition of death is that the spirit has left. And the body and the functions of the mind and the will and the emotions are, are ceased as well, but the body is no longer alive. So that's when death occurs, the spirit leaves. And we as Christians know that the spirit leaves and goes one of two places. But the spirit's gone. Uh, and how the spirit functions in its new realm, not quite sure about that. The Bible's not real clear about that. We still apparently have the ability to have thoughts and emotions uh, because we know that being in heaven is going to be joyful uh, not sorrowful, so there's emotions with that. This aligns very well, and I'd like you to turn to this verse, a very important verse, 1 Thessalonians 5.23. This one single verse 
is what Watchman Nee used as a basis for giving this description about human nature. So it has uh, very important components uh, that tie in with what he has just been saying. So 1 Thessalonians 5.23 reads as follows. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we identify these three components. Spirit, soul, and body. Soul, again, being the combination of mind, will, and emotion. So what is not mentioned, and what I have not yet mentioned, is heart. What is the heart? Uh, again, there's a physical organ, of course, heart. But when the Bible speaks about the heart in so many places, what is it speaking about? If we have a soul, mind, will, and emotion, and we have spirit, that is the life of God, and of course, when we're saved, when we're born again, the Holy Spirit takes up residency in our spirit. So now we have the life of the spirit in our spirit. So what is the heart? Doesn't that seem strange that the word heart has not shown up yet? Well, here's the way Watchman Nee explained that. The heart is the word that's used as the combination of the soul and the spirit. So the soul with the workings of mind, will, and emotion combined with the life that makes the heart. So when we talk about having a heart for Christ, it's all of that put together. So in that sense, you could think of a man as being a, 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 a two-part, if you would, creature. But watch me, the way he explained the components of that, body, soul, and spirit, makes us a tripartite creature. And that's interesting, isn't it? To be thought of as a tripartite creature, you know, three-part uh, Trinity, if you would, because the Bible says we are made in the image of God. And is not the image of God the Trinitarian nature, Father, Son, and Spirit? So it would make sense if we're made in the image of God that we should be tripartite in some way, and this is the way he would say that was. The bodies, the soul, and the spirit. He went on to explain that this analogy of the body, of the human being, is very much like what God did through the Old Testament explanation of the temple that the human body construction is just like how the temple was, in, was constructed with the three parts. So remember in the temple, there's an outer court, yard. There's the inner court. And then what's the third part? The holy of holies where God would dwell and where only the high priest would go. I find that very interesting, that the outer court, like our body, is the outer court. The inner court, the soul, where we have our life. But the inner court, the holy of holies, the spirit, it just seems to be a perfect analogy of how the, 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 the temple was, was to be constructed under the orders of God, of course, matched the human body in such an amazing way. So the place of the mind, it's where our thoughts are to be in unity with truth. Our thoughts are to be word-based. The spirit speaks fundamentally to our mind. 
We are word-based creatures. Truth comes to us and unfolds within us in three ways, as we'll illustrate here in a moment. So why is it right to say that we are word-based creatures? Because God spoke things into existence by word. God said, let there be, and there was. When God said, let there be the, the physical world, and then shortly thereafter, took some of that physical world, formed man out of the dust of the ground, breathed life into that body. The life was the spirit. There you have a human being. So we are word-based creatures, God's word. And again, very Trinitarian in an understanding of God's word, it comes to us in three ways. There's the spoken word that brought things into existence, everything into existence, light, universe, uh, animal life, plant life, everything brought into existence simply by God saying, let there be. I mean, that's an incredible mystery. We don't have the ability to understand how that can be. How can there be a being that says something and something shows up? That's just mind-boggling. So, we have the spoken word. Next, we have the written word. God didn't just speak. God superintended the writing of his word. So, we have the scriptures. The third expression of the word is the incarnation, when the word became flesh. So, the same word appears in three different ways. In creation, in written form, and then incarnation, Christ himself, word made flesh. All of this just continues to come before us of the incredible importance of knowing and living by the word of God. We have to have that in our very being. And then, interestingly... Colossians 1.9, I would like you to turn there, please, because here again we're going to see a tripart understanding of the Word of God, how the Word of God comes to us, how we understand the Word of God, and this has an extremely relevant application to education, how we are educated as young children, as youth, as adults. Colossians 1.9, we'll find these uh, tripart uh, nature of how we learn this word. It reads, For this cause we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that ye, be, that ye might be filled with three things, knowledge of his will, in all wisdom, and spiritual understanding. So if you have a habit of writing in your Bibles, which I hope you do, or a footnote or something, knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. Three different aspects of learning. This is known as a trivium. It's what the classical education world has taught for centuries, that we learn by the trivium method. And <clears throat> especially in Christian schools, we find this, 
but there's also the classical schools that are not Christian, but they draw upon this biblical principle, just don't give credit to it accordingly. So I want to explain to you uh, what is, uh, how we understand these three things. Uh, but I also wanted to mention that here we see what we read in Colossians 1.9 with these three words, knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. There are nine verses in the Bible which has those three words. Just nine of 32,000. There's two in Exodus. There's two in Proverbs. There's one in Isaiah, three in Daniel, and then one in the New Testament, this Colossians 1.9. I learned that some years ago. I forget where I was introduced to that. But it has shaped my work in Nehemiah Institute and working with education. That's been my primary work for 30 years now is with education. Uh, we serve Christian schools, Christian colleges and universities, everything we do is around the theme of worldview. And I'm known mostly around the country in Christian education for a worldview assessment called the Peers Test. And so you have to come back tonight at 6 to learn about that. So that's my appeal to you to come back at 6 o'clock for the presentation about worldview understanding, uh, what we do with this assessment program, and the materials of how we work with Christian schools because that's the war today. Our kids are being damaged incredibly by the kind of thoughts that are put before them through an education system that has gone completely off track in teaching things that are hostile, hostile to the Christian faith. The one example I'll give now to help explain why this is so important to begin to think again about Christian education Today we are at a place, and you may well know this, but I always say this, so I'm going to say it again this morning. Today we have an education system, a government education system, that is telling a fourth grade girl that tomorrow she can be a fourth grade boy, and vice versa. And I think I just heard since being here, through our other associates, that in Virginia the law is passed that now all bathrooms will be co-gender. Do you not understand the affront that that is to the holiness of God? I mean, we have to be grieving in our hearts to see what's happening. But what's happening is the logical outcome of a culture that has jettisoned the word of God and has just said, we're going to do it the way we want to do it. And behind that, it's the work of the enemy. It's the enemy who is sowing these bizarre, evil thoughts into the minds of people who are creating policy to create a culture that somehow we're supposed to fall in line with. This is awful what's happened to us. I mean, this really should be breaking our hearts. This should be bringing us to our knees. And if it doesn't bring us to our knees, God is going to do the next step to get us to our knees because he is going to get us to our knees as he's done with Israel time and time again when they would go wayward. God would bring them to their knees to the point where they would cry out, Woe unto us. God have mercy on us. We're sorry. America's coming to that point. I don't know what it's going to take, but we're going to be at a place soon when we're on our knees crying out to God, Woe unto us. What has happened to us? Maybe some of you already are. I hope so. Because what's happening 
is a very, very dangerous stage in the nation's history. This is not good. Now, we might think, and maybe so, maybe we might think that the end is next week. You know, that's a bit of a mystery, and churches argue over how to think about that. But God help us if history continues as it has for 2,000 years when many generations, almost all generations, thought they were the last generation. Well, they were not the last generation. We may not be the last generation. So your grandkids are probably going to be wondering 50 years from now, what did you do about this culture that we're living with that's hell on earth? We have to take this extremely, extremely serious because what's happened to us is counter to what the Word of God says over and over and over about having our minds shaped on the will of God, on the Word of God. That's why this is so incredibly important. So this idea of the trivium, knowledge, understanding, and wisdom, which has been used for over 2,000 years, this really was worked out by the classics in the Greek world, uh, where they borrowed from biblical truth, even though they didn't give credit to that. But they were right about an understanding of how we are wired to learn. So the grammar, excuse me, the knowledge aspect, this, this is an idea of how you teach grade school children. Gra the knowledge is just facts. Give them the facts. You know that grade school children memorize well. At most of our ages, that's kind of hard <laughs> to memorize. We just struggle with that. Try as we may. But you can teach young children to memorize lots of, I've seen, I've been in churches where an entire book of the Bible has been memorized by the youth and they'll recite that. So knowledge is just the facts. And you give them the facts. Don't worry about the understanding and the wisdom yet. Just give them the facts. Keep pouring in the facts and uh, they'll draw on that. The second stage, understanding, the second word that we see, understanding, is referred to in the trivium as logic. This is the junior high age. What happens in the junior high age? If you've taught school, I have, you know if you have junior high students, they want to argue. They want to question, why, why, why? Why do I have to know this stuff? Tell me why. And unfortunately, most teachers don't understand this is now what's happening to them biologically. It's the way they're supposed to think and learn. They want to argue. They want to know why. So instead of just telling them to shut up, sit down, and listen to me, give them explanations. They want to understand. They're, they're, the way they're wired from God is to now want to know, to understand, why does this make sense? Why do I need to know this stuff? And then the third aspect, the word that we find of wisdom is how to apply it. I have the facts. I have understanding of what it means. Now, how do I apply it? How do we make a culture out of this information? How do we make a society that's built upon the word of God so that we have the knowledge, we have understanding, and then the wisdom. It's, it's called the rhetoric stage. So we have the grammar, elementary, logic, junior high, and rhetoric, senior high. That's the essence of the way Learning is to be done. That's what Western civilization was built upon. And when you draw from the word of God through all of those stages, you get a beautiful civilization that honors God, that makes 85% of the people go to church on Sunday. 
When you don't do this based on the word of God, then you get an education system that makes no sense. And kids just reject it. What's the purpose of learning all this stuff? I'll never use it again. I was a math major. Regularly, I would hear young people say, why do I need this? I'm never going to use this math again. They had no idea how this was helping to shape their mind, how to think and how to analyze. And so they just thought there's no point in understanding these uh, geometric uh, you know, equations or whatnot. So they would jettison it. But it was all a part of how God has designed the body to learn. So we want to recover that. And there are certain Christian schools that do that well. Most of them do not. There's about 8,000 private Christian schools in America. Less than 500 really understand these principles of the trivium. 500 out of 8,000. That's how badly secularism has invaded even Christian education. It's a very, very problematic story. Here's my second fat book. I like to recommend fat books. I like to read. I hope you like to read. Reading seems to become, uh, uh, it's, uh, well, how do you say it? It's, it's lost its flavor. We don't read much anymore. That's a huge problem. We, we, we should be reading a lot. So my second fat book, I'm sure you don't have this, because I used to find this anyway. It's called The Dying of the Light. Fascinating book. 750 pages. I love it. All kinds of footnotes. I came across this 20 years ago. The Dying of the Light. By an ad in a Christian magazine. So I got it because the description of it really piqued my interest. So I got this fat book and started reading it. And I was absolutely captivated by what the message of this was. Now the author... This would probably keep a lot of us from not going to the book because the author was a Catholic priest. I grew up Catholic. Till age 33, that was my religious world. But the book was so incredibly important, I decided to contact this guy. It took me a while to find him. Living in Phoenix, retired. I finally got him on the phone. Spent two hours on the phone with him. I wanted to know... What caused you to write this book? Incredibly important book. Here's the theme of it. The Dying of the Light is the story of how and why Christian higher education institutions, colleges, universities, that were founded by denominations and later shed their identification with that denomination and just went secular. Incredible story. He wrote about three Catholic universities and 14 Protestant universities that all did the same thing. So for 10 years, his order paid him for 10 years to research why is this happening? Why is Christian education that was birthed, Christian higher education, that was birthed by a denomination, different types, including Baptists, why did those schools eventually jettison that connection and become a secular youth school? I don't have time to tell you the answer. You can buy the book or ask me later. Another important verse. Turn to this one. 1 Corinthians 
1 Corinthians 2.14. You should have this verse highlighted in your Bible or an exclamation point beside it or underlined. I hope you mark up your Bibles. Put dates by things. Do you know what the difference is between reason and revelation? Reason is our ability to think, to understand. It's, it's a gift of God, of course. It's how we're wired. We have reasoning ability to reason things, to understand that. Revelation is the aha moments. When we're reading scripture and all of a sudden you get stopped in your tracks and a verse jumps off the page and you say, aha, I see it. That's revelation. We need both. 1 Corinthians 2.14 But the natural man, the lost man, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Now, why is this verse so incredibly important that you should have it highlighted or marked or something? Because this verse is telling us exactly what the problem is on American public square today. The world that does not know Christ thinks that what we hold as important is foolishness. They think we're fools. And they're mad at us. And they don't want peace with us. They want to get rid of us. Because they see us as an obstacle to the good life. Because we have given ourselves to myth. We've given ourselves to an idea that there's something up there who made the world. They think that's foolish. And they're really troubled by the fact that we take our little kids and have them pray to somebody who we say can hear our prayers. They think that's foolish. The primary guy who was so troubled by that that changed education in America, I'll talk more about in depth later presentations, is John Dewey, father of public education. I think I have one minute left. Is that right? So, one last verse here. Uh, am I right about time, uh, Nathan? A couple minutes? Okay. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. We're going to end with this. Another reason of why uh, we need to be word-based and understand this. Isaiah 58, 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. This is the Lord speaking to people. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. When God said through Isaiah to the people, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, that was not a compliment. That was a criticism. Change your thoughts. I'm not changing my thoughts, God's saying. You change your thoughts. Follow my thoughts. That's what we want to do in the work that we're doing with Christian education and with worldview. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. 
we encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and God's Word has had an impact on your life, as together we strive to show forth the path of life. Press on.